before I kill you, I'm going to throw your baby out the window. And to me, that's as good as Sounds of the Lambs or anything. Almost as good as a Rob Zombie movie. You know, like, <laughs> get out of here. It's <laughs> motherfucking goddamn orange peel beef. <laughs> It's one fucking hour time. Uh, of course, this is the show where we talk about one movie for one fucking hour. I am Evan Husney. Uh, we got Tom Fitzgerald in the house. Tom, what's going on, man? Hey, everybody. Happy holidays. Uh, we're doing it up for the end of 2022. That's right. Here we go. And we got Mr. Marcus Herring as well. What's going on, Marcus? What's up, everybody? I'm really stoked about uh, today's selection. It's a good movie for Christ Mass. <laughs> yes it is and actually it's good it's actually good for getting back to form of course uh thanks to everybody who tuned in for our uh 50 our 50th episode spectacular which is one fucking hour on movies we hate and A uh slaughter fest <laughs> <laughs> yeah it right? was yeah 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 it was uh, I, I had a lot of fun on that so that was great so fun yeah so fun to just you know rip into some terrible shit um, but uh, now it's uh, time to get back to what we normally do here. Mm-hmm. What we love to do is is really uh, have a big old fat love fest on a movie that we bo- we all really like and watch quite frequently, it sounds like. So um, <laughs> a- episode 51 is going to be uh, one fucking hour on David Fincher's Zodiac from 2007. Uh, all right, guys, shall we uh, start this clock? Should we do it? Probably, yeah, man. All right. For, uh, so we have one hour for a three-hour movie, right? <laughs> That's right. We're cutting it up. We gotta go. We gotta talk fast. We gotta talk fast. Okay. Mm-hmm. Here we go. All right. And boom. Okay. Let me uh, read the good people just a little bit of backstory on the movie. I'm sure most of you have seen it or know it, but if you don't, David Fincher's Zodiac follows the notorious and still unsolved string of murders that terrorized Northern California in the '60s and '70s which continues to intrigue crew crime aficionados and armchair Redditors to this day. The film is a cross between police procedural and newsroom thriller as it follows the people most consumed by obsession in order to crack the case. And that, of course, we have a string of extremely attractive male actors here. We got Detective Dave Tashi, played by Mark Ruffalo, reporter Paul yeah. Avery. We got Robert Downey Jr. playing him. And, of course, cartoonist oh, Robert Graysmith, portrayed by Jake Gilly. Um so, guys, <laughs> um, I just wanted to uh, quickly talk about this kind of in uh, contrast to last week. Um, I really feel truly that this movie, to me, when I think about it, you know, sitting right at you know the year 2007, to me, it mm-hmm. really feels like one of the truly last great Hollywood movies, you know, to me. Yes, um, agreed. And I think it's very artfully made. Uh, obviously, you know David Fincher is extremely meticulous in his craft and everything, but but this movie is sweeping. You know, I mean, it really sweeps you up into it. You know, and I think that is a lost art in 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 in, in movies today. Uh, and I think filmmakers have kind of totally forgotten how to do that in many ways, or it's less frequent, shall we say? Um, yeah. And I and I don't know if you guys would agree with this, but for me, it's really Zodiac is one of those movies that if it if it were eight hours, I'd watch every second, you know, I thought and, the same thing. Yeah. You know, like, like this could be 10 hours. Like I'm yeah. in. Yeah exactly. yeah, exactly. Like I want the Anthony Edwards, uh, Mark Ruffalo show 
Like yeah. I'd watch the series. <laughs> fucking totally. Animal Crackers. You know, <laughs> SFPD. Totally. 100%. I guess there is a director's cut with a few extra scenes. And I, I mean, it might Bye. be one of the few, <laughs> yeah, one of the few <laughs> pieces of Zodiac media that I haven't really? watched yet. You know, but, um, I couldn't find the scenes online. I only did a cursory search, but I would love to dig into that and watch those bonus. I mean, bonus scenes for this sounds good. Bonus. Okay. Totally. Cool. And um, I also just wanted to, you know, as another reference to last week, you know, we talked about movies we hate and why we hated them and why they're bad um, versus this week we're talking about a great film is that with this yeah. movie, you know, with, with Zodiac, I mean, you are in, it's very apparent that right off the top, you are in such good hands. You know, you are being well taken care of, you know, David Fincher's got your back as the viewer. He's taking great care of you. And the same cannot be said for any of the fucking movies we talked about last week. Um, and, 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 and it was interesting watching Zodiac after all the movies we watched for last week's episode, because it's really that stark difference of when you have a director who's thinking of everything, every possible detail, every possible way to sweep you up into this movie, Mm -hmm. um, and and to keep you and to hold you and nurture you where Mm -hmm. all these other films are doing the exact opposite. I don't know. Any thoughts on that guys? (laughs) Oh, any thoughts? Well, Marcus, <laughs> yeah, I, I think the, one, the way that he approached it is so singular, like from the perspective, from his perspective, I think in some ways it's a retelling of the murders. In some ways it's an adaptation of Grace Smith's Zodiac book, you know, and it's almost like Fincher went into, d- dug through all of the evidence and all of the ways that he understood Zodiac and communicated that to the audience because this story had been told a couple times before, right? There's the, well, there's Dirty Harry, and right. there's, yeah. uh, you know, there's Scorpio. the 1971 Zodiac movie, which you kind of follow the killer, and it's, it's you know, it's a whole, it's horrible. And there's the, um, there's one from 2005, too, which I just kind of dug into a little bit. But people have tried to tell this story before, and a lot of times they focus on, like, imagining what the Zodiac killer was doing, you know, like mm-hmm. when he was not, yeah. killing, you know, instead of just presenting mm-hmm. the case, like as we know it, of what the public right. knows. Right. And it is such a complex story. I think that a lot of people would look at this idea to make a movie about the Zodiac and would do that. Like, okay, we'll follow the killer and he'll be the main character or whatever. But, you know, Fincher had a completely different idea. Like he wanted to bring all of the, you know, the facts and all of the little, tiny little details, all the huge cast of characters, you know, that touched Zodiac's story mm-hmm. and communicate that to the, and bring that to the public so that kind of like, almost like Grace Smith's book did to like preserve the memories of what happened, you know, and, mm. and bring it on to the next generation so people could, you know, yeah. carry on the tradition. Did you read the book? Like, yeah. I never read it. I, I did when I was I in have, college, yeah. I have oh, recently. I, read that. I, have, I two, actually did recently. Two, but I don't know yeah. the difference between the, I know the second one that came out maybe is like, yeah, I mean, like the, further, the OG but, yeah. one, but that's cool. Yeah. I got to read it. One, one thing I want to say, just qu- in, in just quickly in response to what you were saying, Marcus, uh, is I think what, um, yeah, I mean, you know, David Ventures being very curatorial, you know, sifting through all the evidence and all the, you know, yeah, all the fascinating characters, bringing them to life, you know, putting all that work into it. Obviously, it's very detailed and meticulous, as I said, but I do also think that this movie, David Fincher found a lot of uh, this is personal, you know, to him in a lot of ways, because the movie is about obsession, you know, and and, and it really is about, you know, and I would imagine for someone like David Fincher, who is really into the, you know, really, you know, drills down into the details. And I mean, you, mm-hmm. you, you, you actually hear mm-hmm. you actually hear reports from his sets 
where people are talking about how unruly he is and all the you know planning of everything and all the shots and the storyboards and driving the actors insane and so on and so forth. So I think he's he kind of graysmithing. He's graysmithing. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, he can oh, really relate. Okay. He can really, I think, relate to this material on multiple different levels because, you know, uh, there's, you know, yeah, he's he's. I, I think this movie is a portrait of obsession and trying to. And I, but I also think it's what yeah. you 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 also project onto that obsession because I think that a lot of this is about the need to find the answer. Like, why do we need to find out? You know, who the Zodiac killer is? I don't know. Yeah. But it is what what yeah. do we project onto it? I can speak to that a little bit. I think that he, you know, he grew up like I think in San Francisco or like when he was a kid. He was a kid there around the time that this stuff was going on. So That's he right. says that he had memories of it being in the news. And he said that when he moved away, there's a funny little anecdote when his parents moved him away. He remembered looking out the back window going, I wonder if they ever caught that Zodiac guy. You know? Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And so it's, so it's, to- it's a personal uh, haunt uh, in, his, in his childhood, I guess. Yeah. But um, I- yeah, please. Oh, I just just the fact that he took all those little bits and pieces, and like, I think someone would look at like how he wanted to do the movie and think that that you couldn't be you couldn't make a movie that like this. You know what I mean? I think that a lot of people would conventionally look at the way you lay out this movie and be like, it's not going to work, you know. But like he's got he can see it and, and was able to bring it to fruition. And I think you know, it's this is like a I feel like this movie is a good case of like an unfilmable story that got filmed and made. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, totally. It's yeah. I I guess for me, it's like I'd like to get back to your original point, uh, uh, Evan, which was like the filmmaking. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's funny that you're reporting back. Maybe you all felt this way because I felt this way. We watched like two weeks uh, (laughs) of bad films, just just a two hundred ton, you know, bag of shit. And uh, and it's funny because it was the first rewatching Zodiac. Now I was like the first time I've seen a. Uh, like a good film and it was just like the sun was shining on me I'm living like a mole in the darkness you know and uh so i mean i love zodiac and i think it is good objectively but mm-hmm. comparatively to like you know requiem for a dream and all that dreck that we watched it was just so refreshing and i think that like you were saying evan is like uh i don't know it's like again the filmmaking now the, it immediately commands your attention through all these subtle, very tasteful, Marcus pointed out earlier, tasteful choices. And it's great to have someone just guiding you along. And what he's doing is world building, which I think maybe we were talking about earlier. Uh, Maybe Evan, you were saying that like, um, films don't do that so much, but like he's building a time, he's building a place. And it's all these choices, like using that um, Three Dog Night song, like that's a choice, that's on the radio. And then the car is slowly driving. That's a choice. You know, it's July 4th in the suburbs, fireworks. And it's also um, crafted. It's a craftsmanship. Yeah. And it's what I was responding to is the pacing, because again, not to harp on last week too much. Yeah. But like all these films by like Gen Xers, it's all just like, you're not going to pay attention, are you? Music video, music video. You know, it's like, like, like cut, 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 uh, grotesque face. And even boomers like Gus Van Zandt with Psycho 98. Mm-hmm. It's like Fincher is like, uh, I'm going to roll the dice and I'm going to think kindly of my potential viewers and maybe and maybe like think that they have intelligence and um, and sophistication so they could actually be in a film that is paced like this. You guys yeah. know what I mean? Oh, totally. And so that was very refreshing. And he's a Gen Xer. So. Um, that's what I was responding to. And then also just, um, like, again, just that world building, we can talk about that more maybe, but like, um, what I mean is it's, 
1969 to the 70s. It's San Francisco. And one thing I like was it's a San Francisco that's not like peace, man. Everyone's walking around with like tie dyed shirts. That's such a trite way that to maybe go like, hey, it's the 70s, 1971 peace, man. It's actually like a newsroom. <laughs> You know, full of like, you know, hardened guys and they chomping on cigars, you know. There's not a single hippie in the movie. Yeah. And just like Marvin, uh, Melvin Belli, you know. So um, (laughs) I just like that. uh, It's just a very cozy world that he that he grabs you Mm -hmm. into and it's underrepresented and it's done so well that uh, I just want to take that ride, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's all. I couldn't help but like just you know compare it to last week too, like in Aronofsky specifically. You know, I think because like, Fincher makes stylized movies too, you know, but like it does, he doesn't let it, he doesn't let the style take over. And I feel like Aronofsky is like it becomes a egotistical thing about like I have to impose my style on the movie. It has to be about it has to be me. You know, I think Wes Anderson does that too. It's like things oh, like yeah. they come at the expense. Of, the style is so important, but the story in the film like you know, um, are the, are the, you know, the casual and the time and the place, you know? Yeah. And then like the insisting that your style is this, you know, I always have to have my shot centered or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you stick to this formula. Yeah. And like Fincher stuff is like stylized, like hella stylized, but it always is in service of the picture or like at its best moments and the best films of his, his style is at, is at the service of the story of the tone of the themes of the movie it's just he never forgets that he's making a film. And, like, I think we've showed that pretty clearly with, like, Requiem for a Dream last week. He's, like, he's not even making movies. He's just making, <laughs> no. like you said, Tom, a, a director reel. music videos. Yeah. So yeah. I think yeah. what I was saying is, like, this movie is, like, a really exercise of good mm-hmm. taste. Like, it's, yeah. it's stylized, but it's, it's just well done. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it has it's character, but it's not obnoxious. Yeah, but it's also timeless, you know, and I think that's the sign of... Hmm. A, a a really good film is that you know something that is going to get better with age and something that you know does feel and i think this movie is very tastefully made you know and i think it's interesting to sort of you know get into a little bit of you know his filmography because for me you know it's a little i you know he's not like one of my favorite directors or anything you know it's definitely patchy because you know because you know you got things like you know ben button Whoa, you know, you got things Uh-oh. like yeah, panic room and whatnot, you know, things that aren't like, you know, he's definitely got some misfires and whatnot, but um, Alien for three. Alien 3, yeah, you know, it's fascinating Ooh. failure, but not fun to watch. Um, sure. But the thing is, is that uh, for me and David Fincher, it's like, I think Zodiac, where it sits in his filmography is a big turning point, you know, for him, because, you know, he he would go from his sort of late 90s you know, stylish, you know, fight club, you know, where you got sort of all the bells and the whistles, you know, you have a lot of CGI tricks you're bringing into the fold, a lot of that. And there's obviously, there's, there's a lot of CG in Zodiac, but it's, it's pretty subtle and you really have to be, you have to kind of know that it's there. You don't, you actually don't know it's there in a lot of cases. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. And I think what's great is that this is the start of him kind of, you know, leaving those flashy CG tricks at home and finding a very perfect, nice, perfect, balance between you know utilizing it where he needs to but also you know restraining himself in a lot of ways and i think then his filmmaking would take he would almost go far the other he would go almost too far in the other direction later on where with social network and and gone girl and things like that like it would he'd get more sterile you know in his is in his sort of style you know so it's interesting yeah, how this is point. kind of a this yeah. is kind of a turning point for him in in a lot of ways you know so i i think that's interesting in ter- terms of where this film sits too 
Definitely. And I think the, the, I mean, it's worth just talking about the effects for a second. Cause like you said, a lot of them you wouldn't expect to be, to be in there. And it's, it's, I'm, you know, it's a big part of how I think how he visualizes a film. He, he came up from ILM, right? And I, from my understanding, he was sort of a wonder kid there. He was like a, maybe like a teenager even when he started at ILM. Mm. I know he worked on Return of the Jedi and I think he did. Really? I can't, yeah. yeah. I can't yeah. quite remember which oh. thing, but I, I want to say it's the speeder bike thing, which is like the best thing in the whole movie, right? That's I think pretty, he yeah, might have worked on that. So, um, but uh, yeah, so he came up, I think effects were always a big part of like how he, thinks about a film and I love that how they're employed here you wouldn't like you said Evan you wouldn't even think about that certain shots are effect shots the um the, the, street the corners. flyover the yeah. street corners like where the, yeah. the the Washington and Cherry murder of Paul Stein like that's all like blue screen backgrounds and yeah. like um the so buildings cool. are you know, can I just interject one thought and, is um that kind of uh, contemporary craftsmanship in applying computer technology almost reminds me of old Hollywood and and like how everything was done on a set. You know and what I mean? Rear screen kind of projection speaking, kind of thing. Right, exactly. All those yeah. those old, you know, cutting edge uh, innovations. And uh, it's just like this uh, completely controlled sort of artificial, you know, almost like 2001 or something like this artificial yeah. soundstage world, which is more old Hollywood. To speak to what you're saying, Evan, about how it is sort of timeless and, and, and one of the last big Hollywood films. Yeah. Like, a Hollywood film for grownups. And, yeah. um, yeah. So anyway, the last just, of those, <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. There's a cool yeah. little featurette. And it was a flop, the, of course. Right. <laughs> there's a cool little featurette talking about the effects and like they are at the corner of Washington and Sherry, but they've got these big blue screens that they're running back and forth. Yeah. Uh -huh. As the actors are moving and stuff. And, yeah. You know, um, or so just cool. like how maybe a shot didn't work. Like the, uh, the truck thing didn't work out and they retimed it later using effects and stuff and blue screen and, just mm. like a really, but you never think about that watching the no, film. No. I never, not until this watch, which is probably like the 20th time I've watched this movie, <laughs> yeah. did I even start thinking about the effects. Yeah, yeah. let me, yeah, actually, I, I forgot to mention, because, you know, as this film being a turning point in his filmography, it's like, you know, with a film like Fight Club, obviously there's a scene where like, you know, um, where like where he uses CG to such a overt level, you're like very aware of it. Like when Ed Norton comes mm -hmm. home and you see all the advertisements of all the furniture he's bought and that sort of comes oh, yeah. to life and the, the overlays and everything. But well, then how about Panic you follow a bullet into a brain? <laughs> yeah, the well, there's shot. that. There's that. But <laughs> yeah. then there's also in Panic Room, it's extremely like not even motivated where you see like the, the, the CG yeah. camera traveling through the coffee uh, maker, you know, or whatever. It's like, what, what are we doing here? So, but with this movie, you know, it's so tastefully and motivated and, 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 and I think used to, to, uh, an effect that helps push you know, the story forward. What do you guys think, uh, not to drill down on this forever, but like, um, there's restraint. That's what we're getting at here. Yeah. yeah, yeah now yeah. this is a film that's not set in a contemporary world. Mm. And I wonder if he's thinking that it would stick out like a sore thumb too much to use like fancy pants, tricky stuff. Like it's based on a true, first of all, true story. So it's based on the past yeah. reality, but also the past. So he probably, you know, has good enough taste where he's like, again, it would st stick out like a sore thumb to do anything kind of cutesy and innovative like he was doing with like Fight Club. He's yeah. older you know, too like now. You have, I don't know. And, that, and yeah, it's like, there's, there's probably 
I think it's the material. I think what's what Marcus was saying. It's like it, what right. what fits the material. Like with Chuck Palahniuk right. or whatever. Like it probably you know to you know right. if you're doing one of his films, it's going to service you to go a little more overboard over the over the edge with your yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, CG and mm-hmm. stuff. But you know, um, but I also think he's got really good influences with this movie. I mean, he always talks about mm-hmm. when he talks about Zodiac. He always talks about um, he always talks about all the president's men. As Ooh, a major, really? you know, influence, yeah, because and and that film talk about you know sweeping you up into it. I mean, I can see a lot Absolutely. of stylish influence. I mean, this movie really Absolutely. is a mashup of Silence of the Lambs meets yeah. All the President's Men. I mean, right. that's kind of that what it is. Whole, like newsroom world, yeah, with like uh, those yeah. all those uh, actually kind of also reminds me of Mad Men, and and I love Mad Men, so it's a compliment, you know. Um, in the sense of uh, the use of music is tasteful. It really feels like, just to talk shit for a second, it's like between around 2007 to like, in, in a 10 year span, let's say, to like uh, mid 2000, uh, 2010s, is um, I thought there was gonna be a bit of a renaissance of mature, sophisticated, you know, multi-million dollar productions like Mad Men and, and Zodiac, and I was wrong, you know. But uh, it's just like, um, you know, it reminds me of, uh, a subtle commanding hand on a period piece, the way Mad Men could be. What do you guys think, uh, Matt Weiner? You know his take on. I, I think yeah. so, yeah. but I also think like the fact that you know with this movie is that it's all driven by that thrill of finding the answer more than it is about big action set pieces, you know, or anything yeah. like, like, like honestly, and I'm sure we'll talk about some of the scenes in this movie, but it doesn't have the sort of shootouts and chases that, you know, dirty Harry would have, or it doesn't have any of the big, you know, grandstanding or any of these weird false climaxes or anything. I mean, it's it doesn't really, have a big ending. No, it's all about the methodic. It's all about the methodical, you know, progress of, the police mm-hmm. procedural, which is what's so engrossing about it. It's a, it's the that grinding journey. away at it. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and all the details and obsessing over that and the true obsession Great. of that, which I think is what, like I said, he relates to the most. One thing that got me is the passage of time. And just one little observation is um, something I've always loved is there's like the Anthony Edwards part of the movie <laughs> to illustrate the wide span of time that's going on here. Like you're going long in time and then deep in the details and like the film, like you're saying goodbye, you're waving goodbye to the Anthony Edwards portion of the film mm-hmm. and it's gone. And now you're transitioning to this other period of the film. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and it makes you feel the weight of uh, how people are coming in. Even Mark Ruffalo pretty much taps out, you know, so it's like, like uh, it's everybody but Grace, you know. And so uh, that kind of gets me uh, about the scope. You know, it, it feels like a large film, and, but with lots of minute details. And it's just a great combination. So. I, let's talk about a scene. Um, because I think that, um, just to kind of pick apart one of the best scenes in the film for me, you know, it's kind of smack dab in the middle ish portion of the movie is the scene when they, they are, you know, interrogating Arthur Lee Allen. Oh yeah. Um, That scene is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and obviously they're they're at his work. Yeah. The actor's amazing. We're going to shout him out. Um, what's his name, Tom? It's, uh, John Carroll Lynch. I always forget that name. John Carroll Lynch, uh, playing Arthur Lee Allen. Um, and uh, they are, you know, interrogating him at his job. And I think that that, man, that scene um, oh to me God, is, 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 is really one of the more masterful scenes in the film because dude. it's all nonverbal. I mean, they're talking. Everybody's talking, right? But but what's but really riveting. Everything really. underneath, yeah, the, the, the polite conversation. Yeah, Incredible. exactly. No, the, the subtle looks. 
just maybe putting a button on the whole thing, just my two cents and then go off, is uh, on this whole, like, last week, we are watching all these terrible movies, and then this week, you know, I was mocking, um, you know, Joaquin Phoenix and his <laughs> nervous tics and exaggerated acting. <laughs> and it's like, I was trying to think, like, well, what is, what do I think good acting looks like? And it looks right. like John Carroll Lynch with his subtle glances, his pauses, his vague smiles, that is commanding mature, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, film acting. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a masterclass. And everybody, uh, the interrogators, the whole thing, Ruffalo, Edwards, great. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's like, whole, yeah, go ahead, Marcus, sorry. That whole scene uh, works on, I think there's so many contributing factors to it. You know, like all the actors are really good, you know, first of all. Fincher, I, I, he's famous for doing a lot of takes, right? So like mm. in the like 60 or 80 takes. Oh, you know? okay. And yeah, so yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, and so, the, and so then he has a lot of good material to work with, I think, you know, to get that subtlety, you know, and to get those oh. expressions and maybe trying different reactions to things and stuff. Mm. So <laughs> that's, that's what really I was, cool. That's what I was kind you of know? saying. That's what, just real quick. Just uh, that's kind of what I was saying at the top of the episode about being like in good hands. It's like, he's, mm. fu- he's fighting for us out there. You know, yeah, he's going to, he's going to get yeah. 80 takes for us. Just so we get to see the best shit, you know, and it's like, man, yeah. you know, like nobody, like you know, she, he you goes know, that extra talk- mile. He goes well, that extra Rob mile. Rob Zombie puts a lot of work. <laughs> Wait, no, he doesn't. He doesn't at watching, all. Uh, watching that scene this time, it like I, I, it took I probably it probably took me like thirty minutes to get through just that scene because I just kept running it back and reliving mm-hmm. everyone's reactions to it. You know, it's Dude. like you're getting so much out of it. You're it's like an, you're getting all this emotional like rises out of stuff. And part of it too is like that it really happened that way, that that interrogation really yeah. went down and unfolded that way where he's like, oh, those bloody knives, you know, that were my car. I'm know, sorry, like, what, what was that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, oh, the, yeah. this watch here that I'm covering up, don't look at it. You know, everything no. went down, like that really happened. Basically that way, if you read the police report, it does say that basically. Oh yeah? Pretty much how it goes down, the, the boots wow. and all that stuff. So, I mean, yeah. it's like... Um, right off the, the, uh, the transcript. Yeah, it's right off the transcript. Wow. Uh, the way it unfolds is, yeah, I don't know. That's a big part of it, but... Yeah, and I think I it's know. like everything's been building, you know, so far in the movie to this moment in the in the film that like it's that's what's making it also so thrilling to watch is the pacing of the film up to this point has sort of led that's the you, word like 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 you've been primed you know for some big discovery of some kind confrontation of, some yeah. confrontation and i think that the way that it's handled in not a you know over the top sort of way yes it's true to life but of course just in the in the film context is that it is just you know these series of glances uh from all parties in I this know. room is what really makes pauses Back to the yeah. pacing, the pauses. Yeah, but also too, and then of course, in in the context of this scene, where the story will go ultimately, and of course that you know Zodiac, the film itself, and of course the case, the real life case is unresolved, right? So we don't get a big resolution at the end of the scene either. And I think that also speaks, at least uh, to you know, for my money, what uh, it's w- how hard police work must be at the end of the day, especially in sort of disciplining yourself. Because you want it to be him so bad, like you want it to yeah. be, you want it yeah. to be Arthur Leon so bad. I know. And I think it's and, like and, a personal thing. Like it's yeah, no, it yeah. is because I it's think it's not a what career. This, yeah, because I think what this movie gets at, and obviously the Jake Gyllenhaal stuff is a little different, but I think for mm. uh, Mark Ruffalo's character, it's like 
you 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 want it to, he wants it to be him so bad and of course Jake Gyllenhaal eventually does too but it's like you want it so bad that you're that you are projecting onto this person and 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 that's course, I think yeah. how the human mind works but I think that's what examines how difficult that is to separate that from you know human nature and your profession you know in terms of trying to find someone like that I love how yeah. they deal with that in this movie because you feel him walking around saying it. You know, Toski says it. Toski, Toshi, by the way, Toshi, Toshi. I'm going to go to Toshi Station to pick up some power converters. Uh, but I was going into Toshi Station to pick up some power converters. You can waste time with your friends when your chores are done. That's all. That's where <laughs> it that is. Isn't it? It, uh, it is. Yeah. Yes. Was, that really, George Lucas, he did take <laughs> uh, the name of that detective, right? Yes, yeah. he did. He did. 100%. Oh my god. Because uh, yeah, he was a famous guy. You know, in the 70s. You know. Well, he. Uh, McQueen, Steve McQueen in right. Bullet is portraying Tashi, right? Yeah, I think yeah, he worked with yeah. him or something to help. And then him. he's also Dirty Harry too. Right? Yeah, he is. Like, yeah. That's what I see yeah. in the yeah. film. Yeah. I love that. I mean, just as a aside, I love how they deal with that in the film too. It bring it brings such a, a joy and elation to when they do the when they drop the references to those films. You know, there's yeah. that one point where. Robert Downey's like, "Hey, Bullet, it's been a year and a half. You gonna right. catch this guy or what?" Or like, or or, uh, or he's like, "Hey." Like Ruffalo's oh, yeah. like easy to Harry. Easy to yeah, right. yeah, I love exactly. that. And that and yeah. that's exactly what Evan's talking about too. That's the moment where he's like, We all want it to be this guy, you know. Yeah. Like, no? like you want it to be this guy, I want it to be this guy. Gray Smith wants it to be this I guy, know. Fincher wants it to be well, this guy. Can I ask <laughs> you a question? Harry, you, know? you guys are the you guys are the uh, resident experts of this case, only because I'm not. Um, let's spend a minute on the case. Now Here's the thing about Zodiac, the film, and this case is if I don't know the case, and I don't really still, I'm going to take away from this film that we pretty much know, even though he wasn't tried and convicted, we pretty much know that Arthur Lee Allen is the Zodiac. What do you guys think? Well, it's making I mean, it very. Yeah, you know, well, I mean, well, I mean, you know, Arthur Lee, I mean, Marcus, you tag in after this, but. Arthur Lee Allen, you know, is basically Robert Graysmith's favorite, um, you know, right. uh, suspect. And um, he makes that very apparent, you know, in, in the book and in his follow up. Um, and of course, you know, with, you know, the phone, like, and then I, like at the end of the movie, you see that little title scroll that says that, the, the, you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the breathing stopped, you know, on the other end of the phone when Arthur Lee Allen passed away. But it's interesting because in the age of the internet, or in the age of, you know, armchair detectives, as we'll call them, um, Reddit. Like there's you been a, said earlier. yeah, 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 exactly. There's been a lot of other. There's I, I I'm not too deep on the weeds on the people that have disproved Arthur Lee Allen, but mm -hmm. um, there's a there's a whole host of uh, other suspects out there that are just as intriguing, you know, if not, you know, maybe more so. Marcus? It's true what you say. There's so much information out there, like basically everything that you know that Graysmith's going through is like all the in the in the police files is online for you to look at now, and you can go as deep as you want to go. Like um, right. you can even get down to Arthur Lee Allen's like chili recipes for how to cook squirrel oh. and stuff like that, and like uh, we'll post that. all those all those we'll recipe on cards. There when, we, when we upload all the those recipe cards are online. It's nuts. Um, but the handwriting but, uh, was a big thing that disqualified I, him. Was the handwriting yeah, sample, I think, so which is in the film. Yeah, that yeah. never that never jibed. The, the handwriting anal analyst, played by the great Philip, the, the late uh, Philip Baker Hall, great right. small performance. Yep. Um, you know, There's like the, the handwriting analysis didn't match up for the expert at all, right? Ever. Yeah, great. So, I mean, big deal. I, I think the Graysmith himself is kind of a controversial figure. It's weird because he's sort of the guy who 
kicked off the obsession in a way, you know, like and made it yes. made it a hobby for people. He's the guy that made it a hobby for people to go dig through Zodiac files. Non-professionals. Is, you know? Non-professionals, yeah, right, not the, yeah. not the, not not the, the, uh, the Armstrong and Toski. But um, right. yeah, the... But uh, but he's criticized heavily by that community of uh, by Zodiac you know sleuths like really heavily criticized Graysmith for being for you know um, fingering Arthur Lee Allen without all the evidence and just for his methodology hmm. you know gr- when he saw his version of the of the uh, of the three forty cipher that he solved which is the um, which was That's actually the largest solved one right. This, that's the largest uh, cipher, wasn't there's it? There's the 408. I think it's the first oh. one, and the 340 is the second one. But excuse me. So I think I, so I have the, no idea what they're talking about. The <laughs> second cipher. So in in one of the books, like, and they, they show it in the movie that like Graysmith solves the cipher, you know, the 340. But it's like um, his version of it's just gobbledygook, mishmash. You know, it doesn't really right. work. It was actually just solved this year or like last year during the Pretty pandemic. because like. Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, wow. the FBI confirmed Shit. it and everything. Like, this is legit. And it is, it's all about slaves and afterlife. And it is, you know, it's, he, he references the Melvin Belli TV show. He says, like, that wasn't me on, it's on amazing. TV last week. You know, I'm going to put a link episode. to that. There's a great video, yeah, actually, about the 340 that I'm going to put in the description. Oh, it's so if you've cool. not seen it. Um, so, a lot of my point is basically that, like, Gray Smith is like sort of a controversial figure because of a lot of those things. And like Arthur Lee, I think that Toski was like really into Arthur Lee Allen as a subject too. You know, like he thought, I think he died thinking that he. He was, you know, uh, like, as they say, really humping for him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Gray Smith gets really weird. Like he's on Geraldo and stuff and he brings like Darlene, you know, who is, um, yeah. She's played not Darlene, but uh, Darlene's sister who's played by Marjorie from Veep, you know, and, in the movie, oh, right, like he yeah. goes to the prison and visits Marjorie from Veep. That's Darlene's sister. Right, well, right, he would, right, right. Pr- Gray Smith would like parade her around in like Donahue of Geraldo and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, he gets very kooky, and she'd be uh, like, okay. "Killer's been leaving uh, coffins on my on my porch for years and stuff." You know, so she gets sort of the, a weird, kind of a kook. Yeah, things yeah. get really weird. And there's video of Arthur e. Allen too being like, "This has ruined my life," you know. Like uh, I bet. I mean, I yeah. would sue if I was him. Or, I well, you yeah. Know, I mean, but also the same. Yeah, I mean, he's not innocent. Guy. Not innocent either. So people weren't really willing to give him the benefit of the doubt because he was a, you know, a pedo basically. Oh, he was right? convicted. Right. Uh, oh, wow. Okay. So he's yeah, a yeah, shithead. So, he was. Yeah. He died right. Hey, can we spend yeah. a minute on uh, what I think is a huge? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Let me just put a bow on that, and then uh, and then I'll toss back to you real quick. Because I, 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 I think this kind of sums it all up. And I think I was talking to, I was talking to Ramey, uh, shout out to Ramey, uh, about Ooh. this uh, before we started recording, which is, you know, I think that also it's like this movie and talking about Gray Smith and, and, and Jake and, and Jake Gilly's performance in this, too, is that um, it, it is kind of about like how the human mind works in terms of that we need to be able to do to justify and explain these grisly acts and because it's too dark and it's too fucked up to not know what's going on. Like, for example, it's, it's weird to get at the heart of why we need to know. And, you know, Ramey cited the, the, um, the, um, John Benet Ramsey case, you know, which is so, which is a fucking, another fucking crazy ass rabbit hole. You know, it's like, do we really, why do we need to know? But it's like, why are we solving it for ourselves? I think, you know, I I think a lot of it has to get to the heart of, you know, because we, because we're ultimately, it's too dark and fucked up to face the fact of not knowing because it could happen to us, you know? And I think that's kind of 
what this movie hints at. And I think for Graysmith, it's that projection. When you're projecting it all on, you're taking these pieces. Yeah. And I think a lot of that, you know, you can sort of look at now in hindsight, 50 plus years later or whatever, and say, oh shit, this is kind of how we've also arrived at the, you know, media cycle that we're in and the culture that mm -hmm. we're in, you know, with Absolutely. conspiracy theory. And, and by and the way, Zodiac himself knew that. Right, because he was playing the media like a like a violin, you know exactly. what I mean? Which I found really, he's kind of proto in a weird way, where he used he would have I think loved uh, Twitter. Yeah, know? he <laughs> would have. Yeah, he would have. He would have. You know that yeah. kind of thing. He, he so, would like parlor. Okay, go ahead. They, they, uh, they, they. I love when they deal with that in the movie too. Like when you know, uh, Jill, Jilly goes to visit Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> goes to visit Paul Avery at the houseboat, the great houseboat, scene. dude, with oh, the pong man. and like just yeah. playing in demo oh. mode. Yeah, right. Pong. And unfortunately, so he, 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 I love that he apologized. Like, I don't have any. Uh, what are they called? Uh, aqua Velva drinks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> blue. Yeah. Do you want a drink? I don't have anything blue, but I got. Don't worry about that. Don't don't worry about it. I want that blue fucking drink, man. I don't drink that. I really, I want to toss back a an aqua velva. Right. Apparently, if you try it, yeah. If you try, you won't knock it. If you try it, I think that's yeah, what I've heard. They, uh, I think it's you know he says that Robert Downey Jr. says like that great line where he's like you know that there's more people that die in the metro every couple yeah. months than that idiot killed. Right. You know? Right. And right. Exactly. I love yeah. that they dealt with that in the movie. And like he is like withdrawn from the case. He's moved on. I mean, he's like descending to his alcohol. Well, I think he's having a lot of terrible, like like a sinkhole of depression and alcoholism. Like yeah, he's yeah. not doing so well. I love I think how he they, they showed that. I think he would have felt like, better. I think he would have felt better if he did solve the case. I think it haunts yeah. him too in his own. Yeah, life. it's scary. Yeah, freaked, it ruined his life basically. Right. That's what that's what they show. And it's like it drove him to. I mean, that's like the end of the line for him. Right. Like he. They mentioned that he was married early on. And now he's living on a houseboat. He's like, he's. I love how it's shot. I've never seen a shot like that in a movie before, where like he's in repose. He's like lying back. His head's far away from the camera. His leg is like enormous. It's white. It's blown out white. I mean, it's like corpse colored. Oh, yeah. You know, and he's like pulling back, almost like he's. It's like you can just feel. You look at that shot, and you know it's the end of the line for Paul Avery. That he's like. You know, his alcoholism's consumed him. He's going to die on that boat or whatever. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. You know, Very slowly yeah. dying. I love that. Yeah. It's just told Great. just that visual there. Yeah. You know? uh, I'm then, with you. I know exactly what you mean. Uh, and then, of course, Ruffalo. Yeah. And then, of, and then of course, Ruffalo says to, um, you know, Jake Gilly, and he's like, you know, also makes comment about how you want it to be this person so bad. You know, and then yeah. he's become super jaded and moved on because you know, for the same thing. He's like, you know, look, I already went through all this and now you're going through it. So, right. Yeah, right. that's interesting. Go ahead, Tom. Well, can, can, I, to, can I? Well, I only want to do. Well, just you know, like it's time to kind of address a big chunk that I think we all really respond to, which I think one of the, the distinguishing things of Zodiac in Fincher's career is the cast is just a knockout. Mm -hmm. You know, like he didn't always have cast this fucking monstrous. You know, like we're rattling off people already, but I wanted to particularly shout out Robert Downey Jr. because. To me, it's almost amusing. I started this film's 2007, right? And I started watching it pretty obsessively. Like I think I would get it from Netflix so long ago. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I get the DVD, DVD a lot, yeah. right? God. But like anyway, so um, you know, I'm watching Robert Downey in like 2008, 2009, and it's before Iron Man. 
So I'm watching him and I'm, this is where my yeah. head was at. It's just amusing to me is Robert Downey. Wow. Like he got out of his drug problem and now he's maybe going to mature and be this uh, for the next, you know, for the rest of his life, be this um, fun, quirky, small character actor. Yeah. You know, right. you know what I mean? Yeah. So, and I thought, Oh, he's so well suited. Like I love him so much. His mannerisms, you know, and, and, uh, and, and the way he just creates this character is a bit of like a, a strange San Francisco character, like a dandy kind of like, uh, you know, like a sophisticated alcoholic, you know, who had a, I was at a fondue party and everybody got naked. Uh, what's, what's on the itinerary today? Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. So it's just funny to me because, and then it, it, his career went whippingly different with Iron Man and he's making $50 million a year and he's this huge phenomenon and, you know, everybody in the yeah. world knows and loves Robert Downey. But then, right then, is all I'm saying, before yeah. Iron Man, is he was this, yeah. did this great, quirky, small character that I dearly love. But yeah. other than Downey Jr., like we talked about Ruffalo, love him, never loved him more. My favorite yeah. thing in the movie is this thing. They're talking about the the, the, the paint party, you know, and they're, and they're saying like, uh, yeah, you know, it's this thing where, uh, you know, Alan, Alan came over for a paint party in the neighborhood. And then uh, the Ruffalo character's like, what's a paint party? And it's like, oh, you all get together and you paint the house. And he's like, sounds like a terrible party. They throw this painting party. What's a painting party? It, it's a party where people come and help you paint. Sounds like a terrible party. You know, so, <laughs> I don't know. that killed me because that's how I felt. I was like, paint party. And just the, <laughs> Ruffalo's line reading. But then him and Anthony Edwards, mm -hmm. the back and mm -hmm. forth, classic, like, cop buddy movie stuff Detective what i really love oh yeah. no totally but but the one that really got me was uh when they're walking backwards thinking about uh, metaphorically uh backwards about the uh, how the killing just had happened with the cab driver and it's like so okay well you park the car um or no you have the cab driver pull over but he can't accelerate if he gets shot because you got him in that position so i'm not dumb it's like yeah but i'm dumb because i'm grabbing the money I don't need to grab the money from the front seat. And it's just, you know what I'm talking about? Like, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, that is, I don't know why I love that so much. But then everybody, Chloe Sevigny is an adorable 1970 nerd. You know, mm -hmm. like I love her. And I love how their date morphs into, um, you know, guess what? The Zodiac case. You can, know, I tag, the can I tag in there? Oh, yeah. please. Because, um, you know, our, our old one fucking hour tradition back in the start of the show was, you know, when we talk about these movies that we love, you know, what's the what's the one nitpick, you know? And my nitpick is not Chloe Sevigny, uh -oh. the performance. My nitpick uh -oh. is is the is the character I think is 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 very um underwritten and underdeveloped in this movie. If I had to make I one agree. criticism. She's the and, only woman and, in the yeah, she's the only woman in the movie, and it's very kind of a last-minute inclusion, or it's, it's I, not, I it's not, it's not very sought out. And I, I and I, I found this funny the more I thought about it, you know, um, because what would have been interesting is what the fuck is it really like to be on the other side of that fucking obsession, you know, with someone like a Graysmith in your life, you know, and I and I think it's funny because obviously there is. Um, some uh, similarity, some synergy, similarity between a Graysmith and a Fincher, you know, like what the fuck is it like to be on the other side of a Fincher every goddamn day? I think you made a great case of that where he, yeah. uh, he's uh, sort of a, a, a um, you know, um, totemic for, for like Fincher's personality. Yeah. Like he's fine, you know, himself through the Grayson character. I think it's really interesting. 
Yeah, yeah, and and but just also the fact that yeah, I think there's a lot that's that's sort of left to be desired with her character. You know, I mean, obviously, I think that first date scene is adorable. I think it's nice. I like the first nice date. That's all. Yeah, no, of that. course. And then it's and then of course all we and maybe there was more in the cutting room floor, but basically what we get is you know the stuff of her. Okay, now we have children, and now I'm gonna move out and go to the thing. You know, and you really just she's kind of just there as kind of your standard biopic opposite. I know. You know, and she's kind of nagging and. Yeah, you know, but then again, this is based on a real story, and I don't, you know, there, I'm sure there's just more there in in the real story. I'm sure there's obviously no, more of what it's like to be with someone. Fair like enough. That. But to just rattle off, just to finish up on the actors and open it up to sure. you guys, we've got Brian Cox, you know, who's now a huge yeah. deal. He's, yeah. well, he's great. He's great in he's everything, fucking, pretty much. He's I know. He's, a monster. I, he's I like him as Hannibal Lecter in Manhunter. Yeah. Oh, well, that's right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's <laughs> a monster. So he really lucked out with him. And just I'll just land and open it up to you guys, but just on the acting front, back to John Carroll Lynch. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I need to watch more of this guy because I was that's my big takeaway when I just rewatched it was that last shot of the movie when he mm-hmm. goes in the hardware and smiling like, uh, hey, yeah. neighbor, can I help you out? And then his, his smile slowly, mm-hmm. slowly deflates mm-hmm. into these, these recognizing eyes and it's again, I'm repeating myself, ourselves, but it's acting with the most subtle use of facial expressions, but it's so powerful. And um, so big shout out to him. So I yeah, just want to go to the He's and great Robert in Danny. Fargo. He's great in Fargo. I mean, he's the yeah. he's Fran, Francis McDormand's uh, Norm or whatever. Norm? How you, right. Oh, yeah, Norm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, going to get the Nightcrawlers out there. And yeah, he's great. Right. Right. Yeah. He needs, he needs to be, he's underrated, needs to be utilized more, in my opinion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah 100%. Like, and maybe we were going to get into like individual scenes, and I just want to give a quick, maybe give my scene. I'll shut up, but I want to. Are we going to stop talking about actors, or are we going to, we get to talk well, about I'm gonna, him too? I was trying to make a bridge. So, yeah, can like, we, talk uh, about him? <laughs> we have to talk about him too, though, if you're going to talk about him. No, well, then I'll, then I'll just do this. <laughs> I like the guy who has the creepy basement, that whole creepy yeah. basement. Yeah, you know that actor who's from. Oh, we're going to get to that scene. Yeah, we're we're, we're going to get to that Let's scene. Just, Marcus, do, you want. Just, do, do, do you have any uh, thoughts on any of those uh, uh, just, folks? I think it's to have like two really charismatic male leads in a movie it seems rare to me. I don't know that to be true, but to have like Ruffalo is like killing it in the charisma department in this, mm-hmm. and Robert Downey Jr. is too. You know, the, I think I, that always jumped out at me. I don't know which one is my favorite. You know, um, yeah, and. Uh, yeah. Monster I feel hunks. like I, I totally agree that Chloe's like she's doing a great job acting. I love her in this, but yeah. it is, I do agree there's some there's a problem with it that it's grown on me. The first time I watched it, I would I was like I don't really understand what she's doing in the movie, but now yeah. I now now I think I've I've grown to it. Which is some of the I mean that that does happen a little bit with this movie too. It's like you your appreciation and understanding of it grows the more you watch it, of course. Yeah, but it does a great job of carrying you through the first. Time. I know um, she had a hellish time on set. I, th- I know that he gave her a hard. Oh, a hard, hard ass time on it. And she, because you know, yeah. she's. I, I don't think she's used to the eighty takes approach to filmmaking, Christ. and I think that that was a little overwhelming, and, I'm, and I can understand why. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Cause I, but I do love her. Yeah, Anthony yeah. Edwards. You know, I love. I'm always charming. Always charming. Always charming. And yeah, and uh, yeah, it's a real powerhouse. The, yeah, the, and everybody, even like, I uh, gotta call out even Lyle the intern. <laughs> You know, uh, there's the guy on Letterman who's a character on Letterman uh, called Lyle the Intern, and he is the fucking guy. He's Michael Majo at oh, the very end. Right. <laughs> oh, he's great. He's great. Boy, 
it's the, it's his face is the last thing you see as yeah. the strains of pretty yeah. That's yeah. Who that is. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> That's great. great. Thank All you right. for that. Let's 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 with this last 15 minutes, let's just talk about uh, some of the monster scenes in this movie. Jeez. You you had sort of a, I guess we'll start with the one you alluded to, the one with the basement, uh, obviously where you got uh, Jake Gilly goes over to this creepy ass guy's house. And there aren't basements in California, uh, you know, usually. And uh, he goes down there to look through, dig, to dig through old movie posters and film canisters. And that scene, man, again, it's like the silent movie theater, by the way, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, out for some reason. Uh, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> for some yeah, reason. But then, yeah. But the thing about it is that, like, again, there's only like really, um, unless I'm forgetting, like two real scenes of of horror slash tension in this movie, but. The, but but the movie just, you know, the fact that it strings you along and it's building, slowly building to these scenes when they do happen, they are even that much more intense. And and this scene, man, it is so great when he, uh, I mean, you literally think, if you don't know the story, you'd think he's going to be shanked down there looking um, <laughs> through these posters, right? Yeah. It's very tense. Yeah. yeah. That actor, who is that guy? Shit. You guys know his name? Is I he don't. from Rock? I love him. Um, because yeah, it's, yeah. Anyway, it's so unsettling and like, uh, and like, um, he has a, a really controlling masterful, uh, like, um, the economics of his movements and his words, like the way he like shuts out the light of the basement or, and he actually, and he, I love how he answers Hall kind of oddly. It's like Hall's like, he's hearing footsteps upstairs from the basement. They're both down there. And he's like, is someone else here? And, um, so the, the, the guy who owns the house, he's like, why don't you check it out? And it's like, that's not really the right answer. Right. <laughs> like you're supposed like, to say, no, there isn't anybody else in the house. When, it's like, when he, yeah. When he leaves, like he kind of smiles because you can tell he's Jake's scared or whatever. And then when he leaves, he smiles. So you can, I guess that's the indication that he was like fucking with him a little bit. Cause he's was fucking this theatrical him. guy who understands yeah. the horror movies. Also, he's right? like, uh, <laughs> like, like yeah. once in a while I have to make, I have to like mock and make fun of these weird Zodiac guys who run through the train. <laughs> yeah. yeah there's the been latest. about five of you guys yeah. that have come through here looking through this stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I've got a little um, routine. I'm gonna do yeah. the basement on this one, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah the um, the other it. scene, the, the, the other Rainy. scene that's yeah, the other scene that's absolutely fucking terrifying in this movie is Tom. You talked about it before we hit record. Is the scene in the car with the woman and the baby? Tony Sky, mm. daughter of Donovan, who did Pretty Gertie Man. Oh Creepy. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that, but just, I mean, the scene, just, I mean, like, like walk us through it. You just, you know, you were. Well, yeah, so um, this is not an actual incident where the Zodiac, uh, who we think is a Zodiac, actually killed anybody, but, you know, she's driving, she's got a newborn, which is always, I always think about it. In movies, there's almost an instant tension when you had a baby. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Because oh, yeah. they're obviously so helpless, and all of us in our DNA want to protect the baby. So that's just like, it's no, it's no, it's adults, but then there's the baby and the incredible vulnerability of the baby. So it's like nerve wracking. Marcus, maybe you can attest to this. Yeah, I could. So there's a baby. She's driving. It's the middle of the night. It's the middle of nowhere in that weird I-5 kind of world of middle of nowhere, California. And um, he like sabotages her car. She stalls out. She has to take a ride with him. She, she and the baby ride with him to a gas station, quote unquote. Ooh. And um, she's like, hey, we just passed the gas station. And when he says the line that gets me, the big one, you know, is uh, 
before I kill you, I'm going to throw your baby out the window. And to me, that's as good as Sounds of the Lambs or anything. Almost as good as a Rob Zombie movie. You know, like, <laughs> Get out of here. Before I kill you, I'm going to throw your baby out the window. It sounds like... No, but that's, yeah. it, it couldn't be better. And then that last little follow-up, he doesn't kill her, and she hides the baby in the bushes on the side of the road mm-hmm. because he come back. I don't think it gets Scary. better. As far, that is mm. the best horror movie shit ever. No, it is. And 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 that the, that line reading reminds me of um the killer and cruising. That sort of the the, the yes. same the same style oh. of Marble yeah. Mountain. Marble. <laughs> his phone his phone calls are like that too, you know, like yes. Which yes. apparently that's what the real killer actually did. That wasn't a pro- approximation of what he really Heard that. did. Yeah. Yeah. But just yeah, I want to report a murder. <gasps> no. A double murder. You know, yeah. Like, like, double uh, murder with cheese. <laughs> <laughs> double murder with cheese. I'm sorry. Get out of here. Uh, get out of here. Um right. obviously uh, Mar- Marcus, do you have a scene you want to hit? Well, I, 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 this is not a scene, but another a texture that I think is really important to point out. And it, it will dovetail into a scene. The music in this movie is so genius. You know, I feel like vanilla fudge. I feel like the, yes, the, I feel like the, uh, the concept is like almost like it's a radio throughout and we hear songs that were playing at the time. You know, it feels that like that was the concept. And it's like a selection of moments from mainstream pop that have like a sinister quality to them. You know, like, it's like you plucked out the one little moment, like DJ'd the one little moment of the song that was creepy and had a sinister quality to it. And they all have that hurdy gurdy man, easy to be hard, um, mm-hmm. easy to be, that's what it's called, right? Um, mm-hmm. the, How can the people be so heartless? Right, right. Uh, and the, uh, right, the, you, and the, uh, like you said, the vanilla fudge one where it's like, love it. Yeah. Oh. I mean, like, <laughs> love uh, it's, like, it's all this sinister. And I love that it's mainstream stuff that was playing too. Like, yeah. It shows off this, the bad vibes of the 60s, right? We're always yeah. talking about that, Tom, right? Oh. And like, uh, it's like it's, um, they didn't have to cheat and pull off something obscure that wasn't really on the radio True. back then that nobody knows, you know? Just kind True. of madman. Just want a side note. Yeah, yeah. Except for Mad Men does thing. cheat that one time when they play like the really trippy psych song during the pool Whatever. scene. I forget what it's called, but. Um, but they mostly follow the line of like yeah it's playing in like the fall of 66 on the am radio yeah. the marvin gay song during the tower building scene so we mentioned that but also like, even I, just the the pulp uh garbage am radio like gary puckett in the union gap is heard in yeah. the background at one point at the mm-hmm. bar i think you know monty's yeah. you know uh, yeah like young girl get out of my life you know that kind of mm-hmm. like, <laughs> Isn't there some BTO too? I think once the '70s start grinding on, you hear some BTO. Right, there, there better be. Um, I I think uh, <laughs> you know it's not like the, the the idea of having a radio like thrown sewn throughout the movie and you know using pop music from the time. It's not novel or breakthrough. Yeah, yeah. Others have done it, but it's done like again. It's just the way it's done here so tastefully. And it's, it's done, done with intention. so. Yeah, so. and it's done with intention. It's like it feels like the score of the movie. Like if you weren't paying attention. You would think that 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 vanilla fudge moment at the Paul Stein killing is the score of the movie, right. or you might think the Santana bongos or whatever is just the score that they recorded. For the movie. When they open up that this is San Francisco, nineteen sixty nine. Yeah, yeah, but they just and they do the aerial shot going into uh, San Francisco. The old San Francisco, yeah. It's like the way that they did that's like. Um, 
I don't know. It's just so genius to use those instrumental parts. Like it yeah, feels totally. like it's a totally. scored for a movie, and there is there is other scored music for the movie, but that is used so mm-hmm. subtly that you don't even hear that stuff. Mm-hmm. Like when they're at discussing the, uh, you know, Tosky and and um, Grace Smith are discussing over the diner. There's some there's some subtle music in the background, but it's just there to like because yeah. it's a fucking movie, and you need music to a little exp- bit to of, control yeah. how people feel, you know. And I think that's and just I, another example to of sweep them into it. Like so. St- he didn't get so stuck on this like idea of the radio to think like I can't right. have any composed music. Right. Or I can't, you know, like he he did it so tastefully. I think like and, like whatever works this way or that way. And can we just say maybe we mentioned earlier, but the greatest maybe musical cue of a, a AM pop song is actually the reprise of Donovan's breathy voice, Hurdy Gurdy Man. That yeah. gets every time. It's when he when yeah. he's saying like that's the man who shot me, and then you hear. Yeah. Ooh, and he like brings it up. That's filmmaking. Like, yeah. like subtly bringing up, like you're saying, Marcus. Great point. Is the 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 right part of Hurdy Gurdy Man, which is the right. breathy voice yeah. only, the spooky part. Yeah, the spooky forever part. changed that song for me in a good oh, way. Yeah. You know, sometimes oh, yeah. I don't like yeah, how yeah. the movie does that. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that this one. Did, oh, this know? this movie has given a whole other texture to Hurdy Gurdy Man. I think uh, <laughs> that song does yeah. fucking rip though. The drums. I mean, oh, yeah. supposedly it was Bonham. Jimmy Page, motherfucker. But, yeah. yeah, Jimmy Page and Bonham supposedly. But there's Supposedly. a little disputed. Well, John like Paul Jones, else. didn't he? John Paul Jones arranged all of it. So, you know, it's yeah. all in the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? I, it actually but, takes me back to that time when we uh, bought that, that Hurdy Gurdy Man 45 and we slowed that shit down to 33. Oh, oh. And, oh, and, oh, and, <laughs> was, Let's get back to that. Yeah, 20, we will. 23, guys. Yeah. Uh, scenes? <laughs> Uh, I mean, you know, obviously it, it, it's talked about a lot, you know, when you talk about this movie, but the scene, obviously that, that, that Lake Berryessa murder scene where you do see broad you know, daylight murder. Broad, yeah. Broad, broad daylight oh. murder is always scary, but you see Zodiac dude in the Zodiac fatigues there, you know, uh, it's, it's just a, it's terrifying. And of course, like how nonchalant and kind of numb it's played when he's just like stabbing the guy in the back, like, oh, God. You know, well, out of like, nowhere, it's yeah, like out of nowhere. It's, yeah, it's murder. Holy shit. What? And then yeah. she's horrified because she's not being stabbed quite yet. But witnessing the poor fellow getting stabbed next to her, it's just like right. total terror again, better than like almost any horror film I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very, it's they, very they, well done. If you watch the making of, they flew in all those, they helicoptered in the trees that aren't there on that island anymore. Oh, yeah. you know? Of course and they like, did. Uh, and like they re- basically reconstructed the island or the peninsula to be like what it was like. Zodiac wow. Island. That lake is creepy, by the way. Anyway, Lake Berryessa. I don't know if anyone's ever yeah. been out there before, but no. Google really? Lake Berryessa glory hole. It's not what you think, but it's fucking Uh-oh. terrifying. Okay, so um, <laughs> I don't know but, if I'm gonna uh, do that. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it's this, it's this pit in the middle of the lake where your boat could like fall into this pit. It's, oh it's wow! Terrifying. But um, oh shit. Sure. They, yeah, it, I I, you know, I love that the, the guy that they that actually got stabbed. He's like said that he um you know, when he watched it, he had to look away because it was so close to like what he remembered from actually yeah. happening. You know, that was his viewpoint of like laying it, there. Maybe yeah. to unpack it, you know, again the the filmmaking is um I'm a big fan of not the big horror impact murder mm-hmm. scenes so much, but like in in Texas Chainsaw, it's the stuff leading up to the big impactful scenes, the action scenes. Yeah, and it's when. She, you know, they're, they're chatting. She's on top of him. They're like, you know, canoodling. And uh, she just looks up and goes like, 
is there a guy there? And like yeah. you see him in the distance and you, you, the viewer are seeing what she's seeing, which is like, your eyes are trying to fix, like, am I seeing a guy? What is moving? Is that a deer? Oh, it's a guy. And then she's like, wait, where is the guy? He's gone. And it's just I, yeah. like 100% amazing. Yeah, I've, I, I've always said too, like um, about movies in general, like, you know, making a, a scene like that with extreme tension or horror. It's like people don't fuck with the extreme wide shot like enough, you know, to make mm. something like something that's happening at a distance. And like, cause that's, that's how, you know, it probably would be in real life. And that's so much more terrifying because you normally get a little bit. Yeah, no, but you normally get the fucking Rob Zombie. Like, let's let's get all close up into that shit where everything's framed like right in I the know, middle yeah, of your yeah. fucking face. Like, yeah. Quick, how about how about we add some quick cuts in handheld? Yeah. And uh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah Dragula. Uh, okay. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Hey, please. This, this is a little off topic, but what I was just thinking about like all, all the horror and stuff. There is so much comedy in this movie too that brings levity to yeah. it. Like it's yeah, yeah. Humor. Yeah, well, it's got the, humor. The, yeah. the the Aqua Velvet drink. Like when yeah. when because it's when Downey's like um this can't be ignored anymore. When they're talking, yeah, at the yeah, yeah. That was you know, good. Like they're that just good. talking. Well, because what's funny, it's it's again, masterful Fincher is you, the viewer, are going. What's that fucking drink? Right, this can no longer be ignored. What is that you're drinking? It's an aqua velva. You know, yeah. like is that clean? And then so yeah. voice for you, it's like okay, back and forth. Why are you, uh, you know, why are you following me? Why are you like blah blah blah? It's like that can't be ignored anymore. And it's just <laughs> the, the whole timing. Downey, God, I'm so glad you said that, Marcus, because I think that it's a bit of a tragedy that Downey became a big Marvel person because he is so fucking funny. His timing is stupid, man. It's so yeah. sick in this film. With that moment like that, but everything. Yeah, very charismatic and just like it's I think the word is uh, very dry, you know, and it's very um, mm -hmm. deadpan, but the timing is impeccable. And I feel like he's almost channeling his uh, his father and how he would do kind of Robert Downey Sr. line readings, right. his movies, like, dry, deadpan, uh, under, you know, underplayed. Uh, but fuck yeah. like um, like uh, do people call me names? Uh, you mean like, like the R word? And he's like, uh, yeah. And he's like, no. Right. Oh, and it's like shout out to the absurdly dressed, like uh, newspaper vendor, old man, shorty. Yeah, shorty. Yeah. What? <laughs> like, like you know, nice like every side character. Yeah, you know, every newspaper uh, you know on the floor always had like a sixty-five-year-old man dressed like a circus clown. Yeah, like, <laughs> what is that? I, totally. Oh, Adam Goldberg had a little nice turn as a kind of a prick, yeah. like too, you know, like he just comes yeah. in. I'm a prick, nails it for two scenes, and he's out. You know? yeah. <laughs> and he, you know what he feels like too is like like the '80s are coming. It's yes. like I don't he feels have like that guy in Ghostbusters. He's like uh, you know the red-haired guy in Ghostbusters, like Peck or whatever. I don't know that kind of a bearded suit guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, I love like, the movie. Okay, <laughs> okay. Oh, <laughs> Oh, we zeroed out. You got to look at the, watch that clock. Uh, all right. That was uh, one fucking hour on Zodiac, uh, everybody. That was a lot of fun. I mean, man, such a nice palate cleanser uh, to watch that after yeah. last fucking week. Um, we needed it. We needed it. We needed to get back to it. And we needed it like air uh, and water uh, <laughs> to get back to uh, being in the, in the hands of a great and I guess uh, if you haven't seen Zodiac in a while, man, 
Yeah. Give your, set aside two and a half hours and just have a great time. You know? It's a perennial. It's definitely one that yeah. uh, should get into the mix on a year. Over the holidays. Just, sub, there should just be a subscription channel that just plays Zodiac on a loop. <laughs> you know? uh, and you can just, uh, I'm gonna, I don't know what you guys can do. I'm going to look up the deleted scenes after this. Yeah, uh, totally. This Please little, send, it, send it frog over. over. Yeah. Well, I'm sure there's stuff out there. As a, as a quick bonus, if we can, bonus. I wanted to... I wanted to touch on this because it, it didn't, it wasn't uh, something that was really uh, relevant to the film per se, but mm -hmm. relevant to the case of um, the Zodiac Killer. I think it's interesting to shout this out because this is kind of breaking news in the Zodiac world. So, yeah, so I thought we might as well get into it here. Um, this is my favorite suspect. Uh, in the Zodiac uh, case, in the real life case. And it's not that I think necessarily this is the guy who it is. This just happens to be my favorite theory, the one I want it to be, the one I'm projecting on. It's the most. Grace Stoning on this guy. Yes, I, I am. Yeah, Robert Grace, or Grace Smith, excuse me. I am, I'm Grace Smithing here. Um, s similar to my favorite JFK assassination theory, which is the one where the Secret Service, who was up all night drinking the night before, had accidentally fired the shot that killed him in the back of his head because the car jerked forward. That's my favorite one. Look that one that's up. Uh, yeah, that's, that, that's also fun that I want to... That's one that I want to believe because human error is always more, you know, uh, probably more... Um, likely. <laughs> likely <laughs> anything than, than anything else. Anyway, okay. So this uh, came out recently. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna kick it off, Marcus. Feel free to jump in whenever you want because I know you were hip to this too. But basically, um, we're talking about the suspect. Um, his name is Paul Alfred Dorer. I'm gonna say Dorer. <laughs> he needs three names too. Yeah, they all do. To be a serial killer, you do. <laughs> you do. <laughs> right. So. So check out this origin story. Check out yeah. this origin story. So okay, so this was this suspect was discovered semi recently by an author named Jarrett Kobeck, um, who's an author. He's written a lot of books, um, so on and so forth. And he was setting out to do to write a new book about misinformation and the history of conspiracy theories. Kind of what I was talking about earlier about how you know he was gonna he planned on touching on Zodiac as just a. a like as an illustrative way is how, you know, detectives and armchair sleuths all fell victim to this sort of mass disillusion and um, how settling on one set suspect just after a little bit of, you know, threadbare coincidences and all that sort of circumstantial evidence. And that would sort of be used as a way to explain of why, how we've gotten here today in 2022 with all the fucked up shit that's going on around us. Um, but yeah, anyway, totally. one, one thing that uh, Mr. Kobeck did uh, was really, and this is why I think this is pretty smart. He he really studied Zodiac's letters, honing in on specifically the cultural references. Okay, like the stuff when he would talk about most dangerous game, or he would talk about that uh, that one film. Uh, yeah, yeah, that that one film, The Mikado, or he uh, actually somebody um, on. Um, the internet also semi recently discovered a connection between this comic book, which is uh, Tim Holt number thirty, 
uh, shout out to my comic friends out there. Tim Holt is a series that the um, original Western Ghost Rider character debuted in. Also, Frank Frazetta did a lot of This work. is like made for you, Evan. This is. This is my shit. No. So, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, uh, really digging into all those cultural references and touch points that he would quote and sort of say in the various, le- uh, um, you know, letters. And um, that uh, helped Kobeck sort of form this image of this man, uh, you know, that the Zodiac must be a big fucking nerd because he must be into pulp novels, comics, other things like that, other sort of touchstones of that. Someone who and read like a lot. Photo sci-fi novella like yeah. zines from like well, 19- yeah. which well, exactly. that that really fascinated me. Like yeah, exactly. It's a, That's yeah. It's a very small world of yes. like you know seventy three guys in their you know uh, yeah in their. Parks and basement. Like Lord of the Rings fanzine. Wasn't that one yeah. of the things that he wrote? Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The Hobbitalia. Yeah. So the thing is, is that Kobeck Once. got the idea because he was so, because he figured this guy was a huge dork and must have read a lot and subscribed to a lot of these zines. He Sense. decided to do a quick Google search here on searching for zines uh, and the Vallejo, California Vallejo. area. Right. And, um, and, and, and basically he found uh, a lot of zines where this guy, Paul Dorr, had, had, had actually written into these zines and had various eerily sounding Zodiac ring to it. All the right. things he his was sort of saying. To the editor where he's like waving his fist in the air, you know, about, a, about, about one the post office. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Just like deliver it with one cent stamps. And the yeah. Zodiac did. Right, and the Zodiac did do that. So the, the, there was a lot of weird coincidental overlaps. Long story short, I want you guys to read it. I'm going to link this article that summarizes the whole story in the description. But there was a lot of coincidental overlaps that this Paul Dorr person had with the Zodiac letters that you could see in examples of fanzines. Like literally, like we're talking about Lord of the Ring fanzines, sci-fi fanzines. And it's very smart to think that if someone's going to write into a newspaper, well, they also might have written into a fanzine, which is very, very um, you know, smart. So anyway, long story short is a um, couple of the examples of the evidence of that is he would talk about with the Hobbit one, with, with, with the, uh, the, the Lord of the Rings zine. That um, in in writing into that fanzine, he would talk about how he used to create codes and ciphers. He would actually say that in the zine. He would also talk about how he had um, he had this um, a lot of enthusiasm for you know cosplaying like as medieval characters, you know, which kind of harkens back to the crazy oh, zodiac design. But you know, he would never have as- done that cosplay at a Renaissance fair in the area on the day of the Lake Berryessa murder, would he? I don't oh, no, know. He, oh, actually, yeah. no, he did. That's what I'm he saying. Did. That's a, he yeah, did say I that. Yeah. I think the well, guy. I think the author said that you know that at two hours drive from Lake Berryessa that day there was a Ren Fair. Yeah, where yeah. he could have been. Well, he did say it was like right down the street. The author did, but it was like you know it's a two hour drive or something oh, where that you could have been where you could be in an executioner's hood. I thought it was like down the road. Like he was trying know. to think of like why he would have an executioner's hood, right? Because he was like into Ren Fair. What do you look? The bottom line. What do you guys think? This could be he a was, whole other episode. Well, like, dude, he was. Well, let, let me let me get two more bits out and then let's put a bow on it because I this is why he's my favorite. Um, just one other thing too, just just for the viewers at home, he had his own zines called uh, that were all about survivalism, and he would talk about uh, making bombs, and he would give a recipe for. 
uh, making bombs. And he actually made the same mistake in the bomb recipe that the Zodiac also did, had outlined in a similar letter, too. That's pretty fucking weird. Mm-hmm. Um and it was really fucking smart of this author, Mr. Kobeck, to actually research that bomb recipe and actually found out that it was printed in a Minutemen sort of like militia, like militant right wing group. And then, of course, he went into the FBI file, file and found that Kobeck was on the member list of that Minutemen Whoops. group as well, too. So another like it's, crazy He's thing. looking like a really likely suspect. I mean, he is. and there's two within that. There's also... Uh, Testament testimony from um, his daughter. Yes, you know that at least sound like he has a very uh, let's just say volatile temper. Oh yeah, uh, very violent, very oh, violent, yeah. abusive. Yeah, it, Go ahead, I, I need to tap in at that moment because like I gotta say that there is that phenomenon of where people accuse their family members of being serial killers. Like that is there's a lot like of a, that. A, there's a lot of that, like. Oh, um, but the author the, went to her. She didn't go to an author. Like there's the black doll yet. Well, you know. but wait, she didn't say. She didn't like come out of nowhere and say, I think she denied it. She denied it. Yeah. Yeah, The author pursued her and then she like on the fence, like, Oh gosh, I hope. Right. I mean, yeah, I, I think I have a little different take on it than ever. I think this is because I, I love the I love ghost stories, but I don't believe in ghosts, you know, but I think it's fun to pretend to believe in ghosts. So that's how I feel about Paul. That's my personal feeling about Paul Durr. Like I had a blast going through the evidence. Yeah. There's a lot of it out there. It's public. You can check out. I had a blast reading the article, but my takeaway from it was I thought the author was doing sort of a postmodern type thing, almost like adaptation where like you, you say you know, that movie adaptation where it starts off one way and then he writes himself mm-hmm. into it. And, you know, the, right. Like, and, and so I feel like this guy's doing a postmodern thing where like everything Evan was saying was initially he set out to show like how conspiracy theories and misinformation and how those things like, uh, mess up mess into history and how like the the sleuthing and stuff and armchair sleuths can get swept up in it that's what he set out to write and uh but then he but while he's discovering while he's doing that book story he finds a Zodi- a suspect for the zodiac unexpectedly you know so i, I think, felt like yeah. and, no, the, and the, he well, becomes is, then he takes yeah. on those characteristic traits right he, he takes on those characteristics that he was criticizing and the the, the my last little bit of like proof for that is the book cover that uh, for the cover of the book, it's at least the one that that was at the uh, the sort of release party. It has a little quote on it that says like, "Can you see the flaws in the hunting method, or will you just agree and say case closed?" Like it actually says that in the book cover. So it's saying like, "Are you, can you see the flaws in the methodology, or are you just going to say agree with me and say case closed?" So I feel like he is doing sort of a my take on it, and I was I'm probably wrong, but I thought he was doing a postmodern type thing of like. Showing like showing the audience how you could get how easy it is to get swept up in the conspiracy if yeah. you have like I think I think my my two cents on that is I think that's giving this guy too much credit I think that would be like too much of a insane stunt that wouldn't have that would have been there have been holes shot in that by now I think already and I and I think that's just that's too for me I just sort of feel like that 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 would be too much of a um, I don't know. I just I just don't know if I, I, I could see that guy pulling something like that off because right. there is evidence here, you know, that that like people are corroborating. Right. But like all all um, like all, you know, suspects for Zodiac, it focuses on the things that fit 
and ignores the things that don't fit, right? Yeah, no, I of mean, course. Just, and there are things that don't fit here. It's all circumstantial. Yeah. No, it's it is. It all it is. It is. No, it is. No, the no, one thing happens. I will say, the one thing I will say, well, just to close the loop on this and end the show, is um and I and, and I and I did sort of say this is my favorite, you know, suspect because you know there it, it you know it deals with a lot of this cultural deep obscure culture ephemera that would have been impossible for the detectives to search at the time. Cross-reference, much less source at all. Totally. So over their that heads. and so me. Just as yeah. a case. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, you know, exactly. And the daughter is fascinating. The daughter of Paul Dorr, the suspect, is fascinating because she does paint this portrait of this guy who, you know, uh, was an eccentric outsider, sharp, intellect, wide-ranging interests, the type of guy who'd be reading, uh, you know, um, um, Edgar Rice Burroughs, but then also tomes about ancient Egypt and witchcraft. And right. I can see that type of person. And, I know. Um, a lot bizarre, of those like, blue-collar intellectuals like that. Yeah, weird fascinations, but he was into Dungeons and Dragons and fantasy and, you know, always carried weapons on him at all times and things like that. Again, all certain circumstantial stuff. And the fact that he, you know, also, you know, did code breaking in World War II and stuff and, uh, and, and had a history of PTSD and violence. But the thing that really gets me about this story that I never had thought of it this way. And this is why, again, it goes into the fantasy booking of this that you really want this. This is the fan fiction of this. You really want it to be the guy is the daughter talks about how. Um, you know, she was, uh, you know, she was a teenager, you know, she was doing drugs. She was hanging out with, you know, uh, boys and going out on Friday nights and going to these makeout spots and everything. And when like he would in, catch uh, December, 1969. Yeah, exactly. December 68. Yeah, exactly. And like he would, yeah, yeah. Right. And like, um, she would, uh, you know, and there was, she detailed many violent encounters with her father when she would find out he, she was doing heroin or she was out with a, you know, whatever, doing things that he didn't approve of. He would beat the living shit out of her. And, but there's this one instance where, yes, she would. They pinpointed on the calendar that around the time of December 20th, whatever it is, 1968, around the time the anniversary of us recording this right now, um, um, that she would have gone out to uh, Marcus. The name of the makeout spot is, you know, this. Well, Lake, um, Lake Herman Road. Lake Herman Lake. Road. She would. Go, she went to Lake Herman Road. So, the, so the idea of the, the father as a potential motive to go out there either to find her in that makeout spot yeah. or, or to kill somebody to frustration on that or to or to create something that would terrify her to never go back there. Oh, is, I didn't um, even think it's just I'm, it's just a way to mm. think about that crime scene that like don't go out I've there. There's a never thought about like I've wow. never thought about that killing to be a father going out there looking for his no. daughter. That's yeah. that's right. fucking motive. That fucking there's a real motive instead of crazy random. Right. Yeah. And I want to make the that... announcement, guys, for all of our sake. Let's make the announcement now. Here, we're changing formats in 2023. <laughs> true crime show. Yeah. So this is going to be we're starting a true crime podcast. Obviously, based yep. on this conversation. So yep. I'm just kidding, and that's all I'm going to say. Yeah. Uh, happy New Year. Okay. Anyway, sorry, we had to nerd out on this. This is a little yeah. bonus, right? It's, oh, it's fascinating. It's yeah. So do your research. Everybody take a look at it. The article's fascinating. Form your own opinion. Do you think this is a uh, postmodern art project? Or do you think <laughs> it's an interesting suspect? More next week on one fucking oh, hour. Oh. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, 
Yeah. All right. Let's talk about next week. Let's talk about the movies. Get back to the films. Another good film. Oh, it's actually not next week because we're taking the holidays off. Oh, yeah. The next episode. Yeah. So there probably won't be uh, an episode dropping until after January 1, whenever that falls on the calendar. I don't know. When is that, guys? Uh, I guess we'll have to confer. Sunday. Sunday. Sunday, Monday. Let's see. Probably around the second or third of January, maybe a little later. It'll probably be somewhere around there. But um, yeah. we're going to revisit a film that um, lost a coin toss we did uh, a, a few months ago. And I think it's I, I think it's about time. And I also think because we went so fucking hard on Joker, talking about Joker, oh. that um, we're not quite done with you yet, Joker. Uh, I think the Joker. reason... This kind of brought yeah. it back up into the into our into our minds, our mind's eye right. here, our Joker eye, is uh, we are going to be doing one fucking hour next year, our first title of next year, one fucking hour on Martin Scorsese's King of Comedy, the real deal, the real shit. We're going to get into this movie, one of my favorites of all time, actually, um, and there's a lot to talk about with this movie, and I'm sure we're going to get into... Yeah. 1983, we're going to get into Jerry Lewis, we're going to get into fucking oh. De Niro's best it's performance, in my opinion, and uh, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> Singer's cracking up, one, one of the big favorites. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, no, and Scorsese's so. Scor- 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 weird uh, 80s career, you know? Yes. Um, De Niro, uh, Ma, you know, yes. in the face. It's <laughs> yeah, creepy, exactly. it's funny, it's got a weird message. It's post- um, uh, it's actually it's meta. It's post Jodie Foster uh, obsessive Rick mm-hmm. and assassin attempt. You know, it goes it's like a circle that Scorsese yeah. was making. Yeah, yeah, fascinating stuff. Very excited about that. So when we come back to you guys in 2023, uh, we're going to be doing one fucking hour in King of Comedy. Uh, everybody, have a great uh, holiday break. Um, enjoy the holidays. Uh, stay safe. And we will see you soon. Tom, I'll see you in a few days. We're going to go slow down some 45s. And uh, okay, everybody, take care. And drink some 40s. We'll drink some 40s and slow down some 45s. And But we we can't leave you, of course, without... I almost forgot it. I almost forgot it. We got to find it here. Sorry, I'm on my other computer, so it's harder to find this. But we are going to not leave you without your... Mommin of zen okay everybody take care and we'll see you next time bye-bye and while the zodiac's identity remained a mystery his killing was about to become even more bizarre in lake berryessa northeast of napa cecilia ann shepherd and brian hartnell had spent the afternoon together are you gonna write me i'm sorry brian what were you saying i want to know when you were coming up I want your wallet and your car keys. Motherfucking goddamn orange peel beef. Wicked, man.